124, we looked at the announcement to Zacharias and to Mary, and how these announcements of John the Baptist and Jesus fulfilled prophecy. And then we spent a week looking at the simple obedience of Mary and Joseph. God directed, and they obeyed, with no question recorded in the Bible anywhere. We finally looked at the events around the birth of Jesus Christ and the miraculous truth of his nature. Then in Lesson 127, we contrasted the wisdom of the sages that sought him with the evil of Herod, who sought only to kill him. Then we looked at his unexpected stay at the Jerusalem temple as a youth and how this was only disobedience in the eyes of his parents. And finally, last week, we looked at the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. So now focusing in on some of the, the side lessons that were associated with the main lessons, back in 121, we talked about biblical tools. And I don't have my Bible up here, so I can't hold it up. So imagine I'm holding up my Bible. Black cover, kind of time-worn. I don't take as good care of it as I should. Um, in teaching and in responding to criticism, Jesus always spoke the words of his Father. He would go back to the Old Testament time and time again. And, and in that same approach, we should emulate what he did. Rather than just listening to the words that are in the Bible, the words that are coming across when our pastor or another speaker is preaching to us, excuse me, we should always be willing to study ourselves, to back check. And to do that, we have to have a Bible, and we have to know how to use it. Um, when you were a kid, relatively early in school at some point, they taught you how to use a dictionary. Long enough ago that you probably don't ever remember being taught how to use a dictionary. But there's a lot of information in a dictionary that if you haven't been taught, it's just going to fly by. You know, what it means about the different tenses, how to read the pronunciation. In the same way, your Bible should have a bunch of tools in there that will help you in your study of the Bible, but if you don't know what they are, well, they don't do you any good. So, for example, and this is a, a picture from my Bible, um, every good study Bible has some way of spotting an Old Testament quote. In the case of my Bible, it's parenthesis. If you look at verse 23, you'll see it's set off in parenthesis, and that means it's quote out of the Old Testament. And so as you're reading through the Bible and you see a quote in the Old Testament, that should make you think, hmm, where's that from? Because it's from a place, and again, a good study Bible will tell you. If you look in the center column, there's your reference for, I'm going to walk over and point at it. You can see the parenthesis up here. And then over here, there's a 23, referencing verse, verse 23. There's a little A here and an A here. It tells you exactly where that quote comes from. But a lot of people, I think, when they're reading their Bible, they just skim over that stuff. And I challenge you 
If you're reading your Bible and you come across something that doesn't make sense on the first pass, or has a quotation you're not familiar with, take the extra step. Chase it down. We're all supposed to be familiar with God's word. And familiar does not mean, yes, I know where my Bible is. It means we should be comfortable with it. You know, that we, that we are personally somewhat capable, not to the level of a preacher, to the level of a scholar, but we have an understanding of what's in our Bible. And we can rightly divide, understand the truth that God has in there. And it doesn't come for free. Right? Uh, all of you who have jobs, and I'm sure that's most of you, you got better at your job over time. Because you may have put, hopefully, some effort into getting better at your job. It doesn't come for free. Now, other tools available. I have this, learn to use other tools. I have this little circle. And over there, there's some numbers circled. My particular uh, study Bible has a guide to the original words in Greek and Hebrew, the key words. And those are those numbers. And then there's, if you look at verse 23, every male that, and it's a little PPT. That tells you the tense in Greek. And I assure you, many of you really won't care. But if you're seriously studying your Bible, understanding the different tenses in Greek will give you an entire new layer of understanding as you're trying to read the verse in English. And then, very importantly, know who it is who wrote your margin and your bottom notes. Because there's a lot in your Bible that was not written by God. And you have to have a clear understanding of who wrote it. Because if you're a conservative Christian reading in a study Bible written by a liberal Christian, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And honestly, vice versa. But I shouldn't be talking to a whole lot of liberal Christians here this morning. Know the organization and the editors. Know their biblical stance and position. What do they believe? Because it's going to influence what they write in your notes. So either plan on rejecting everything you read in your notes, in which case I'd ask why you bought that Bible in the first place, or know that the people who wrote those notes have a like precious faith with you, and you would take their advice on a passage. If, if your notes are garbage, find a new Bible. That's personal advice from me. That's, that's just advice. So in the case of my Bible, a guy named Spiros, Spiros Zohalites, uh, a Greek scholar. I don't agree with everything, but I largely agree with his positions. Warren P. Baker, the editor, a uh, good conservative Christian. AMG, the publisher. They're not perfect, but they have a, a good series of solid works. My notes are not inspired, but they can be influential. And that's what you have to understand. So that covers what we talked about nine weeks ago now. So lesson 122, we talked about the canon. There are 27 books and letters that were distributed among the early churches, which became part of the canon, English, C-A-N-O-N, two N's, not all together. And it's a list of the genuine. And it comes from the Greek canon, canon, I guess, K-A-N-O-N, which is literally a papyrus reed. They grew there in Egypt. And papyrus was good for two things. You could open it up and make paper out of it. 
but also the stalks were often of a fairly consistent length, and they made excellent uh, yardsticks. Not a yard worth of yardsticks, but a measuring stick. Um, those of you who've done any work with your hands, you know sometimes you don't have a ruler when you need it. And I had this discussion with my daughter uh, last two weeks ago, last week, something around then, because we had to know how big her hat was that she was a cap that she was wearing for graduation. I said, well, "How big is it?" She says, "I don't know." I said, "We'll get a ruler." She says, "I don't have one." I said, "How can you not have a ruler?" I said, "Okay, get a piece of eight and a half by eleven paper, hold it up next to the cap, and tell me if the cap is bigger or smaller than the eight and a half inch piece of paper." It's the most crude ruler known to man, but almost everyone has access to an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper. It's a standard. On the short edge, you know that's 8.5 inches. And on the long end, you know that's 11 inches. And if you fold it in half, now you've got 5.5 inches. And you can approximate a ruler. Well, that's what they did with these canes. With these papyrus canes, they would cut them off. And this then became their yardstick for measuring things off. So the word for the reed became the concept of measurement, became the concept of standard. And so that canon, that measuring stick, became canon, a standard of measurement, a standard of what is true and what is false. Does that make, that's the way language develops. Does that make sense? It's got nothing to do with boom, canon. Just happens to be the same sounding word, a synonym. But at the same time that these 27 books were circulating, there were lots of other books circulating which were um, garbage, which were false, which were counterfeit, which pretended to be God's word. And so we have to ask, if you're a 1st, 2nd, 3rd century Christian, how do you tell the difference? They used the same standard that was used in the Old Testament. And God gave his people that standard. If a prophet shows up and makes predictions and they don't come true, he's not a prophet. God gave the Old Testament prophets signs to prove who they were. You look at Elijah. No one questions whether or not Elijah was a prophet of God because God empowered him to do miracles. That same standard, look at their works, look at did God bless their ministry with supernatural signs, that same standard was applied to the New Testament. So for example, if Jesus the Christ, clearly he was a prophet from God as well as being God himself, but he was a prophet. Anything he wrote down would automatically have been included in the canon. What books did Jesus write? Well, none of them. Okay, they would have been in automatically, but... That wasn't his ministry. That's not the job God gave him. Okay. Well, if he wrote nothing, who wrote? Your logical second tier is the apostles. Anything written by one of his chosen apostles would have to be in. So that's your book, your Gospels of Matthew and John. First and second Peter, first, second, and third John, Revelation. There, there's... Not a lot of question about these books. They were written by apostles. That was the greatest authority available. Well, similarly, Paul was proven an apostle by the miraculous things he did. So anything clearly attributed to him 
once again, is included. It gives you Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, I forgot Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. That's a good chunk there, but we only got two out of four Gospels. How about the other two? Mark and Luke. Was either an apostle? This is the audience participation part of the class. Was either of them, uh, was Mark an apostle? Okay, I can see you. You're not just paintings, right? Was Mark an apostle? Thank you. Three tries. Was Luke an apostle? No. But a little bit of digging shows that the Gospel of Mark is based on the experience and the teachings of Peter. Mark was a disciple of Peter. So it gets included because the information came from Peter, who was, after all, an apostle. Similarly, Luke might as well be the Gospel of Paul because Luke was a co-worker and a disciple of Paul. And that also include, justifies the inclusion of the book of Acts, written as well by Luke. So what's left? Eh, got a few books and a few letters. Hebrews, written by somebody. A lot of people believe it was written by Paul. I've leaned that way for many years. Um, there's some argument. But it doesn't matter. Because the book is very clearly inspired of God, even if there's some question over the authorship. It, um, it was accepted by the apostles and many church fathers as inspired. It reveals and clarifies many point of doctrine, and it looks nothing like the fake books. It really ties in well with the other books. It has internal consistency, which is always a good hallmark of God's authorship. So Hebrews was accepted. The book of James was questioned for a lot of years. Because on the surface, it appears a surface, it appears to contradict the teachings of Paul. Paul's all about grace and faith. James appears to be about works. But that's really only on the surface. Paul, in fact, identified James as an apostle in the book of Galatians. Also recognized James was written very, very early, and specifically to the Jews, uh, probably around 46 AD. So the message is going to have a different emphasis because it's aimed at a particular audience. But if you get past that surface, it also agrees very well with the rest of the scripture, another one of those tests. And then you got Jude, also questioned for many years, but it was written by another physical half-brother of Jesus. James and Jude were brothers, half-brothers to Christ. It was accepted by the apostolic circle. It's consistent with the other books. And that closed the canon. Now, there were a lot of other books out there, but they all had issues. They were either incredibly internally inconsistent, they would argue with themselves. Um, there's, there's no part of the Bible that argues with itself. Unlike, say, the Quran, which is constantly contradicting itself, which tells you something about authorship. Let's move on. In Lesson 124, do we have my mic? Is my mic live yet, or are we still relying on the pulpit? Well, it's tough being chained to a pulpit, brother. I don't know what I'd do without technology. I guess I'd yell a lot. So in Lesson 124, 
we spent some time talking about misconceptions around angels. And people attribute a lot of things to angels. Um, and I think it's pretty easy to go beyond what the Bible says. And whenever you go beyond what the Bible says about something, you're in, you're in marshy ground. You never know when you're going to get a foot stuck up to the shin in mud. So let's, we spend a little time talking about what the Bible has to say. Excuse me, about angels. So first of all, they are created beings. And uh, it could be argued that they were created during that six-day interval that Christ, excuse me, that God, Jesus included, created everything. Uh, they have a specific nature. They have specific duties. And some of them went off the rails. They chose to disobey. And if they were created within that six-day period, they went off the rails pretty quick. So let's look at some scripture. In Exodus chapter 20, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And over in Nehemiah 9, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone, thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Now, I had always thought that God created the earth in six days. I'd never looked at this verse that says God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And if he created the heavens and all the host within, within that six days, well, that's when he made the angels. The, and the, the names of an angel reveals their roles. So in Isaiah chapter 6, above it stood the seraphims. And it shouldn't be seraphims, it should be seraphim. But that's just bad English understanding of a Hebrew plural. Each one had six wings. And with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The seraphim, their role, their duty is to declare God's holiness before his throne. They are heralds. You guys know what a herald is? It's not just a newspaper published in a certain city at a certain time. A herald is one who announces. Uh, if you watch a historical drama, the guy with the big stick going, bang, bang, hear ye, hear ye, that's a herald. His job is to announce. His job is to proclaim. And these angels proclaim the holiness of God. Then in Genesis chapter 3 and in Exodus, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turneth every way to keep the way of the tree of life. And in Exodus, one cherub on the side, excuse me, one cherub on the end on this side and another cherub at the other end on that side. Out of the mercy seat made he the cherubim on the two ends thereof. Cherubim are guardians. They guard whatever God tells them to guard. But in particular, they guard God's holiness. And all through the tabernacle, all through the temple, cherubs are featured, symbolically guarding the holiness of God, separating his holiness from the sinfulness that's around him. And they have other roles as well. In Hebrews... But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister them who shall be the heirs of salvation? Angels serve as ministering spirits to the saints. Likely, really, this is an aspect of carrying messages, messengers. Well, that's pretty much a herald. It's related to that announcing, carrying messages function. And a similar function can be seen in Acts chapter 8, when the angel of the Lord directed Philip to head into the desert, carrying messages. And then in Acts 12, And upon a set day Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. And this is an example of an angel delivering God's judgment, but guess what? That's a message. So it falls back into that herald function. Some of the angels chose to rebel. In 2 Peter 2, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, or in Ephesians 6, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. In Colossians 1, For by him were all things created, that are in heaven, and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. In these verses, we see created angels that chose to disobey. And again, if they were created in the six days of creation, we don't know how long it was between creation and man's first sin. But it doesn't seem like it was a very long time. So that rebellion of the angels did not happen in eternity past if they were created in six days. I mean, Lucifer didn't serve God for a long time. He just went off the rails in a hurry. How human of them. In Lesson 125, we turned and we looked at Mary. And... If there is a heresy that has wrecked the religious lives of more people in the world, I don't know another one other than this. This crucial misunderstanding of God's word. Mary's prayer to God, and then later Elizabeth's prayer when Mary came to visit her, is the basis of a terrible misinterpretation of God's word, a divine and sinless Mary. Historically, it comes about through syncretism. Uh, the Catholic Church has always been very willing to bring in other ideas that don't come from the Bible. You can see it in, in Mexico, I think, is a, is a great example in more modern, only 400 years ago, times, where they would bring in the beliefs of the Aztecs to make the Christian religion more familiar to them. And that's been going on since the beginning. There were first century churches who turned away from the teachings of the Bible to make themselves look more attractive to their potential audience. Still going on today. But it went on back then, and they brought in ideas from other places. And every significant religion in the history of the world, and I use the word religion because these are made up by men, 
has included the idea of female gods, goddesses. Because the women deserve equal time. We'll we'll examine that idea somewhere else. But there's always been a queen of heaven, Isis, Ishtar, Ashtaroth. And these were a problem for Israel in the Old Testament. But that idea that there has to be a female to counteract the male, to bring it into balance, is a very human idea. And it came into Catholicism. Wanting to justify this, now they've got to look for biblical support. If Mary is this important religious figure, we've got to find support for her being special. Right? Otherwise, we can't support it. So we're going to use a method called eisegesis. And you guys should have heard that term before. It's the exact opposite of exegesis. Two big words. Anybody want to take a crack at exegesis? Uh, people are, uh uh-uh. uh. Yes? So exegesis is bringing out what's in the word. Eisegesis is applying your ideas to the word. Yes. So eisegesis is I'm going to look for a text that supports what I believe. And I will twist it as far as I have to so that it supports what I believe. Does that sound like good biblical scholarship? It's the antithesis of good scholarship. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen. So they look at the angel's hail of Mary and Elizabeth's praise of Mary and conveniently ignore all the details around them. So the original angels hail to Mary and the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. That's out of the King James Bible. If you read that same verse in a Catholic Bible, it reads a little bit differently. Hail Mary, full of grace. Now, Full of grace sounds pretty much equal to highly favored until you unpack it. So the the Greek, karito'o, to grace, to give special honor, to make accepted, to be highly favored. Someone who is elevated above their station, perhaps, and praised and given special honors. To the Catholics, literally full of grace, well, there's a problem. You see, to the Catholics, grace is not just what God gives us. It's a quantifiable, measurable thing. You can measure it in cups. Well, not really cups, but you get the idea. To a Catholic mind, grace comes from God and is given to the church and then is doled out to the believers through ceremony. Through the Lord's Supper, it imparts grace to the person who partakes. A measurable amount of grace. And that measurable amount is necessary every so often to counteract the sins we do. We don't believe that. But that's what they believe. So, if it's quantifiable and tangible, and she's literally full of grace, well then she can't sin anymore. See, they see grace as preventing sin. We see grace as forgiveness from our inevitable sins. And that's a very big difference. 
As I said, God's grace prevents us from sinning. It doesn't give us the strength not to sin. Okay, that's a very dangerous statement. (laughs) Because in a way, I'm going to get myself in such deep water so quickly here. Let me try again. We don't see God's grace. If we imagine this to be a chunk of grace. I go to the Catholic Church. I participate in the Lord's Supper. God's grace goes into my pocket and counters a certain amount of sin. Do we think of it that way? No. We don't try to measure what God gives us freely. We know that we sin. We recognize, hopefully, that we've sinned. We ask God to please forgive us for our sin. And God is gracious. God is forgiving. And he doesn't dole it out in little gray packages or little pieces of bread. That better not be my car. But if she is full of grace and the grace of God prevents her from sinning, then she's incapable of sinning and must be holy. She's considered by them a new Eve, blameless. And she also needs to be sinless because otherwise Jesus would have inherited sinful humanity in their version. It's not what we believe. Makes me wonder where she got her sinlessness, but let's not get into that. We don't want to start Catholic Theology 101 here. But again, karito'o, that word that appears there in Luke, only appears one other place in the Bible, in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. Where it says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Well, if we use the Catholic interpretation in Ephesians, then we're all sinless. And that doesn't work. Romans 3.23 clearly says all have sinned. And Mary's response herself proves the Catholic theology is wrong because when she responded In her Magnificat, her great prayer of praise, she identifies God as her Savior. Do you need a Savior if you're sinless? No. And the best counter-argument comes from the words of the Lord himself. When he was teaching, it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee, and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. This lady in the crowd was elevating his mother as something special. And he clearly identifies Mary as just another servant of God, no more special than any other. It's not a difficult argument to counter. But if you try it, I would recommend wearing ballistic armor because it's going to get ugly in a hurry. You're at the very core of someone else's beliefs. So then, lesson 126, we talked about the incarnation. And there's a word, a very fancy word, hypostasis, which combines two Greek words for underneath or below, hypo, and stasis, a standing or a position. So it literally means the underlying substance. And it's used to refer to the truth the reality of the incarnation. A very important doctrine, which is really easy to misunderstand. 
And hypostasis is not the same thing as theophany. It's not the same thing as God appearing before his incarnation because it happened. Jesus Christ appeared in the Old Testament a number of different times. Was he called Jesus? No. Was he called out as the Christ? No. But he did certain things in those appearances that showed he wasn't an angel. For example, someone appeared to Gideon and accepted worship from Gideon. Angels don't do that. You try to worship an angel, angel goes, not me, him. Angel didn't do that. Accepted worship. Well, that tells you there's two possibilities. It was a demon, which is absurd, or it was an appearance of God in the flesh. But the hypostasis, the incarnation, not the same thing as a theophany. Not quite the same as the virgin birth, but a result of the virgin birth. There were two natures in God, side by side. Not mixed together, but he was 100% God and 100% man. Which adds up to 2% and 200% shouldn't be possible, but God. And a misunderstanding about that is the foundation of most heresies in Christianity. I'm not going to take the time to go through this, I'm running long, but every time someone tries to explain the incarnation, they're in deep water, and it just gets worse from there. There are certain things we have to accept. Let's move on. Lesson 128, we talked about staying behind. And once again, we hit a passage that people use to poke at the Bible, to argue against the sinlessness of our God. Brother, is it working now? I can wander? There was much rejoicing. So many unbelievers, as I said, have used the story of a young Jesus in the temple to claim that Jesus was disobeying his parents. This would be breaking the fourth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother, and it would be sin. And if it's sin, Christ is no longer sinless. He's disqualified from being the perfect sinless sacrifice, and the entire New Testament collapses. And the Old Testament follows it quickly. And we're left walking outside because we got no business being in here. That's kind of a problem. Now, there's no question, because the Bible tells us, that Jesus chose to remain behind while his family left. Does anybody question that? Bible says it, we believe it, right? But was this disobedience? That's the question. So we start with the scripture in Hebrews. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So this, this scripture clearly identifies Christ as sinless. So the question is not, was it sin? The question is, why wasn't it sin? Somehow Jesus was right and his parents were wrong. So what was he doing in the temple? We remember the story. It was fairly recently. What was he doing there? Learning. Yeah. He was asking questions. He was listening to the answers. And he was asking new questions based on the answers he got. And that is learning. At least that's the way learning is supposed to go. Okay? I think sometimes we've turned learning into just lecturing. And I, I'm guilty of that here. I do occasionally try to ask questions to see if everybody's awake. And then I get a look like a box of donuts, completely glazed. Anyway, 
He was learning. The best kind of learning. When you sit down with somebody one-on-one and ask them and get an answer. He was learning. He was getting instruction in the law that he couldn't get in Nazareth. Remember, he grew up in Podunk. There was not a religious scholar in in Nazareth. Where is he going to get this information? And it's a mistake to think that Jesus, as a boy, had a godlike understanding. Remember, he emptied himself. He set a lot aside when he came to the earth. Baby Jesus did not understand his own incarnation because he was a baby. So as we pass from a baby to a 30-year-old man who knew everything about the scriptures, based on what we can see, that learning had to come from somewhere. Right? Didn't magically appear in his brain. He trained. He learned. So once again, we have an example of what we should be doing when we look at Christ. He learned. He was getting instruction. He was literally about his father's business. One year before his bar mitzvah, he's supposed to learn of the law. Now, to the average Jew living in Nazareth, what they could learn from the scholars who were there in Nazareth was good enough. If you're going to grow up to be a carpenter, you don't have to know the fine points of the law, do you? You have to know the basics. God has told us, set us a standard. We're supposed to live up to that standard. If you do that, you've done what God wants you to do. Right? But Jesus was not preparing to be a carpenter, even though he worked as one. He was preparing to be a prophet. He was preparing to be the prophet. So that preparation had to come from somewhere. So Mary and Joseph, well, I want to skip over that. But the story that we read is told from the perspective of Mary and Joseph. They came back, and they're all tied up in their concerns and their worries. Because if my 12-year-old child disappeared, I'd be going nuts. And I believe I did at least once. Because children disappear occasionally. When I don't know where my kid is who's 21, I get a little bit twitchy. So the story is written from the perspective of the parents. And their three days of, let's face it, panic, as they could not find their son. So when they find him, they predictably react from the perspective of, how have you done us so wrong? And that perspective colors the story, but it's not really true. It's just their perception. The reality is he wasn't disobedient. He just did not live up to their expectations, which is not the same thing. So, should anyone ever challenge you on that, understand the basis of the story, understand what was really going on. He was there because that's where his father, not his adopted father, but his father wanted him. He was obeying. His parents had different expectations. Then finally, let's talk really briefly, because I am running over, about John's baptism. So John, if you'll recall, John the Baptist, baptizing in the Jordan River, going up and down the Jordan, calling people out, telling them they needed to change their ways. 
They needed to live a, a life closer to God's expectations set out in the scriptures because the Messiah was coming and they should be ready. Now, this doesn't mean you can't come to the Messiah unless your life is perfect. That wasn't the message. But if he's coming anyway, wouldn't you like to come a little cleaner than you were before? That's the message. Get ready. He's coming. And John would baptize the people if they repented and agreed that they were going to change their lives. It wasn't the same thing as this, because this has a different meaning, but it was close. But as John's baptizing... Someone he knows is the Messiah shows up. Hi, John. I'm here to be baptized. What? I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says it has to be done. Jesus tells John it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. To, if you will, check a box. To accomplish something that needed to be done. There was a reason. Now, Jesus was sinless. Jesus had no reason to repent. So it couldn't be the usual reason people showed up to get baptized by John. So what did Jesus accomplish in getting baptized? Well, first of all, and simplest and really least important, it stamped John's ministry as approved. Because John's ministry continued after the, uh, the baptism of Christ. John continued to preach. And he continued to attract people and point them to God. There's a guy named Jesus. He's my successor. He's the guy you really want to talk to. But let me give you an introduction to him. In being baptized also, Christ was associated with sinners. We all are in need of repentance. And while he was not in need of repentance... He got baptized to identify himself with sinners, to put himself in the place of a sinner. After all, that was his entire job on earth, to live the life, to associate with us, and yet remain perfect so that he could be the perfect, sinless, substitutionary sacrifice. Yes? And finally, it baptized him into his own church. Christ is the head of this church, right? Oh, come on. Christ is the head of this church, right? Okay. If Christ is the head of this church, is he a member of this church? Can't be the head of the church if you're not a member, right? How do you get to be a member in this church? Baptism. How did he get to be a member of his own church? He was? Kind of follows, doesn't it? You know what? I'm going to close on that note. Brother Richard? Brother Richard?